Welcome, everybody, to another exciting episode of This Week in Mormons with the Twim Sibs. Did I get that right, Melissa? Yeah, Twim the Sibs? Twim Sibs. Shout out to the Twim Sisters. They're the best and have been doing this for a long time. And we're just going to take over a name and call ourselves the Twim Sibs. Yeah. Not, not siblings. That would be more descriptive. Okay, whatever you want to call us. <laughs> I just can't call us Twim M&M. You didn't like that? I didn't like that choice. I didn't like it. Everybody. Yes, it's Matthew and Melissa. We're the here. T- the We're happy to be back. Yeah. So today, it's been a long process, Melissa. I started in October. I did a sleep test to see if I have sleep apnea. Oh, and- wait. How did you... Are you snoring a lot? Yeah, I snore a lot. But more than that, <laughs> like on my watch and devices, it, it'll keep track of how much I snore uh-huh. and, and how much I sleep. And it basically was telling me that I never um, sleep. I get very little oh. and I'm always tired. Oh. So I went in for a sleep study. I went in in October and saw a doctor. Then in December, I had my first sleep study, early December. Okay, wait, then, I, I need more details. So a sleep study, what do you do? Like lay on a table and try and fall asleep? Like, what does that mean? <laughs> And now sleep. The first one is they give you this device, you hook it up to your body, you take it home and sleep with it on, and then you drop it off and they look at the data. Okay. Based on that data, I wake up, I think they said it was um, 800 times (gasps) every, no, 80 times a minute I wake up. I can't, it was. That's more than every second. Yeah. Yeah. It was like that a lot. What? And they have this range you're supposed to be in, and I was off the charts bad. And so then they said, well, we need you to do another one. So then I had to go in and spend the night at the place. Oh, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. You had to go into a doctor's clinic and spend the night in like a doctor's bed? I mean, they make it feel like a hotel room. But basically, I get there at like 9.30 p.m. And then I was gone by like 7 a.m. And This then- is my worst nightmare. Like this is this is my <laughs> worst nightmare. Ew. And they hooked me up to even more devices and glued things to my head and stuff like that. <gasps> no. And it was okay. a very uncomfortable night's sleep because I didn't I couldn't move because I had all these things on me. But mm-hmm. they would put these different masks on me and blow air into my nose and stuff. So my watch told me that I had five hours of sleep that night. Uh-huh. I have to say it was like the most restful sleep I've had in like 20 years. Sleeping in the creepy doctor's office connected to all the devices. Yeah, because it was like I could finally breathe at night. It, like, So there's these CPAP oh. machines that like kind of open your airways. That wasn't enough for me. They gave me a BiPAP machine, which is <gasps> they blow air into my nose. Every time I start to breathe in, it blows air into my mouth and nose so that while I get oxygen While you're trying to going. sleep? Yeah, while I'm sleeping. And so, it worked. You slept very well. Yeah. And so today, wow. finally, so now we're in March. Today, I finally got my mask. And so tonight, I'm going to hook it all up. And I'm going to put this big thing on my face and like wear this the mask on. Yeah, it'll cover my nose and mouth. Oh and my then goodness. I hope I'm going to sleep like for the first time in my life, like sleep well. I'm going to have to share with you this video. Um, we'll, we'll post it on our um, show notes here to listeners. There was a um, Valentine's, I think it was Jimmy Fallon. He makes these music videos and he brought on the Backstreet Boys who are now like super old now, right? Like they're our <laughs> yes, age. Yes, and yes. they did this Valentine's song where it was like, like what it's actually like being married on Valentine's Day. <laughs> and, and one of the images in their video of remake 
is um is a woman sleeping in bed and then they pan sideways and her husband's got one of those big sleep masks on. <laughs> so I it's know. legit. I and know. That's where we are in life. It's not super romantic. <laughs> but I don't know who decided that romance should happen in the bed anyways. Like in the morning and at night. Like is that really the best time to be romantic with people? <laughs> Send the kids off to school and find your romance in the midday. That's the way okay, it Okay, sure. I, whatever you think, Natty. Uh, that's funny because I'm having the opposite problem of you. I have had a head cold for a full two weeks, like really bad. Like I cannot get rid of this thing. So I've been tracking my sleep with my watch and it is so embarrassing. I've been sleeping 11 and 12 hours per night for the last two weeks because I'm just so sick. All I can do is sleep. I get home from work and I just fall dead asleep. So yeah, 11 and 12 hours, literally for two weeks. And I'm like... This can't be. This can't be healthy. We're on the opposite ends of the sleep spectrum. Apparently. Well, uh, like for my whole life, when I was a kid, I would sleep for like twelve hours and still be tired. And at one point, yeah. I decided I'm just going to be tired all the time, and I just need to get used to it. That sucks. Yeah. What if What if I could feel rested? That like I'm really excited about this. I'm gonna take pictures of you with your stupid sleep mask on, though, and post them all over and embarrass you. Okay, I mean, so that's embarrassing. So someone I know, they have a battery pack, and they take their sleep apnea machine with them when they go camping and stuff. Oh, I'm not, I'm not sure I could do that. And <laughs> you would scare people. And my machine has airplane mode in case oh. I want to take it with me on a flight and hook oh, wow. up and just. Oh my goodness! Like I mean, Darth I don't want to make fun of what is obviously a severe medical condition but this is funny <laughs> and they made sure to let me know that i get to a sleep device a medical device is a qualified medical extra carry-on bag so they can't charge oh. me for an extra carry-on so bag when do, I bring okay. my sleep app because oh i guess i can't put it in my luggage because it'll get broken or something i'm like carry it on the plane with you okay no i'm so embarrassed for you i, I can't <laughs> wait for this that's fabulous. Excuse me. Can I get a, a better outlet so I can plug in my sleep machine? Yeah. Well, that's a super fun life update. So thanks for sharing. I can't wait to, yes. to follow up on that. <laughs> Getting older is great. It's awesome. <laughs> so, Melissa, you're going to give us the first news story of the week. Yeah. So, what we're going to do is we're going to run through these um, quick clips really fast. So, these aren't going to be super in-depth stories. They're going to be more hit and run. But the first one, um, the Deseret News put out an article about preparing to speak in church, which I mean, okay, like it's it's really just kind of a clickbait article. But um, I did think it was interesting because they, they gave us um, statistics on how many people speak in church each week, because if there are um, like 30,000 wards, essentially, then that means that 62,000 members of the church have to prepare a talk each week. Like that's kind of interesting to think about, like 62,000 people trying to prepare a talk. And so they just put out this, you know, this quick article that was like, hey, when you're speaking in church, here's some good things to think about, you know, like have an example, use personal, um, you know, personal stories. And don't begin by saying like how much you don't want to talk and how you try to avoid the phone call. And that's my anyways, favorite part of every yeah. talk. I love that. I know, part. like, hey, I tried not to answer the phone, but then my wife did, or whatever. Um, so, um, anyways, it's it's just kind of an interesting article. But the reason I wanted to talk about it is because um, have you been on ChatGPT yet? Open yeah. AI. Yeah, yeah, I use okay. ChatGPT. It's so fun. Okay, so we've just been experimenting with it recently. Um, because I'm a teacher, like obviously I've been like trying to write papers and see what my students think they're getting away with and stuff like that. 
And on Valentine's Day, I asked ChatGPT to write um, a love poem for my husband, just kind of being funny. And it did such a great job. It was like, I was like, he likes to go boating and we like to go get drinks at the Maverick. And it was like the funniest poem it wrote up for me. And then I just said, like, I said, regenerate. And I did a second poem, which was equally hilarious, but completely different. So then we were like, hey, I wonder if this would work for writing talks in church, right? Because you got to play with it and see. So I said, um, hey, write a talk on, write an LDS talk on prayer. And so it did. And I was like, this is fine. And then so I gave it some more instructions. I was like, I want you to use quotes from the Book of Mormon. I want you to use quotes from President Nelson. And I also want you to put in personal examples. And it needs to be 10 minutes long. And boom, 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 like three, three seconds later, like, here's my beautiful talk. And it is like <laughs> the personal examples. I mean, they're not mine, but I'll claim them. Like it was so good. Was like, like a bot. This is life-changing. Like we are, yeah, exactly, Matt. Like now we're going to be robots. It's nothing real. Quote, we're going to be quoting robot talks. Wait, for church. No, did you really give this talk in church? Well, no, I haven't been assigned to give a talk oh, okay, in church. Okay. And like, frankly, it's not the kind of talk that I would give because I'm more of a person who just like, make some notes and maybe writes down a scripture or two and just kind of talks like that's more my style. But there's a lot of people who are not comfortable with speaking and write it down and read it word for word. And I'm not kidding for these people. This is going to be amazing. They're going to feel <laughs> so confident. It, and you're still like learning, like you, you're still like, you're not doing like the physical research. Like it's doing the research for you. It's pulling all the quotes and all of that for you. But like, I'm, I'm not kidding. Like if you can spend two minutes writing a talk instead of two hours, but yeah. better for you. I think it will really replace the mothers who write talks for their kids in primary. I don't know if that oh. still happens in primary, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right then the mothers don't have to write it for the kid. Yeah, or well, they I just stand telling... up and read an ensign article. Yeah, which is so boring. And I mean, you have to tweak it and play with it a little bit, right, to get it to say exactly what you want it to say. But it's so fast and and so thorough. I mean, I love it. I was telling our mom about it, and she was like, "Oh, well, I'm giving a lesson in Relief Society," so I was kind of showing her how to play with it, and and she was like going crazy because I mean, she's <laughs> seventy years old, right? Like this is so different from what she's used to for writing a oh. lesson. And I mean. It did an amazing job. It was like, and then like you can have this point, and then you can have this point, and then and then it, it tells you things like here's a game you could play, like here's an example you could share. Like it was so good. But I will say, because sixty minutes did a piece on this last Sunday. Yeah. The chatbot gets a lot of things wrong. It's kind of like Wikipedia. Like it draws oh, yeah. from these databases. So it's you wouldn't want to use it in a situation where the answers really matter. Because well, right now, wrong. right now it does. Like if you're on um, ChatGPT, it'll say like, hey, we will give you sources, but they're not real. Like they're, right, fake. they're fake. And But it does say like within the next two or three months, we we hope to have that completely taken care of. So, I mean, I think it's in its beginning stages now, but I don't think it'll be long before... Um, no, it's it's pretty trustworthy. Okay. Okay. I have a, a, just a little question on talks for you. Sure. Is it appropriate or necessary to give a joke at the beginning of one's testimony and or talk in church? <laughs> yes, to both. It's absolutely necessary because good night church is boring. Like if you can do anything to just like get people to wake up a little bit, just pay a small smidge of attention. And also then we can have something to talk about at Sunday dinner, right? Like, oh my goodness, did you hear how they started their testimony? Does it have to be yes, a canned joke? Absolutely. Like a pun, like knock, knock. 
who's their I mean, congregation. I think the worse joke, the better conversation, right? Obviously, it would be better if it was something more natural or, or just, you know, entertaining. But I don't care what it is. Wake me up. Bring some light to this meeting. I'm all, I'm all, yes, necessary and appropriate. What do you and, think? And another question. You've been to Hawaii more than I have. Is it appropriate okay. to stand up and say, Aloha. Aloha. <laughs> wait, 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 congregation. Try again. Hey, hey Wellsville Fifth Ward. Aloha. <laughs> um, okay, listen, we have... <laughs> And I'm not making fun because he's an amazing speaker, but one of our high councilmen is Polynesian. I don't know what island he's from, but yes, he he does like to say aloha and get us to say it back. And like, that's fine because it's your culture. But to be clear, it is not mine. And I feel ridiculous and also sound ridiculous because you know what they always do, Matt? They're always like, ah, uh, try again. Aloha. Okay. But the other thing he does, Matt, he sings. Every oh. time he's given a talk in our ward, he sings and oh. he's, he, he's acapella, but he'll just be like, and I just wanted to share this song and he'll sing like, I'm a child of God, but like in the like Polynesian style, you know how they play the ukulele. Yeah. He doesn't have the ukulele, yeah. but you're, you're feeling the style. I mean, this is his signature move is the aloha <laughs> and then pull a song out and sing it. And I don't know how he has the guts to just like full on, just at the mic in the middle of his talk to start singing. But like no, he does. No, no, yeah. no. <laughs> and like, I'm always sitting there awkwardly like, okay, this is sweet and special and totally how you share your testimony. But like, I can't make eye contact with you. This is so awkward. Whenever I go to a restaurant that has live music marching around the restaurant scene, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to just stare don't at you. Stop at my you... table. Don't stop at my table. <laughs> okay, we have to move on to another news story. So yeah, because that was a quick clip. Good job, us. Oh, wow. Okay, well, so the next okay. one is that a religious leader from Azerbaijan came to Utah and visited with the world uh, with the church leaders at Temple Square and did a tour of Welfare Square and then went to BYU. BYU is the first university to teach Azerbaijan language at their Which school. Which is so cool, yeah. Yeah, and then they send exchange students can go to Azerbaijan to study. So I think it's just another sign that we're a global church, uh, another sign that we're trying to get along with other faiths, that we'll take a leader from another Muslim like religious group and invite them to come and see what we do and yeah. a way to kind of build bridges in communities. I think we're doing so good at that. And I think President Nelson is really um, the leading force behind all of this outreach. And, and I, think it's, I think it's impressive and I think it's awesome. Yeah. Okay, our next story is, um, it's about um, the church has been donating a lot of things to shelters on the northern Mexican border. So there's a lot of refugees at the Mexican border, either waiting to cross the border or have been stopped at the border. And there's a lot of migrant shelters right there at the border. And um, so just recently this week, um, the church donated, I don't know how to say the name of this town, but Reynosa. Um, yeah. Anyways, so they donated 30 wooden houses so that the people don't just have to sleep on the ground or in tents. And then they also donated um, water purification um, systems. And um, again, it's just it's just something... I think the church does so much humanitarian work and we have no idea about it. I think there's a lot of complaining in the church about like, oh, we have so much money. We should spend it on this and this and this. We're spending our money on awesome things. Um, this is just one um, thing that they talked about, but they said all over the border, there's all of these... Um, 
migrant camps and they've been giving things consistently throughout the year, um, food, um, water, um, stoves, like all kinds of things. And the the quote that I wanted to read, which I think is really cool is um, from the church. And it just said, we are a religious so organization. Have... Go ahead. Yeah. We, you just cut out for a little bit, I think because of the storm. Oh yeah. We're in the middle of a storm. Uh, where were we? Well, I'll just finish what I, what I think. I think that <clears throat> it's a reminder that to Jesus, the people at the border are not undocumented immigrants and they're not a political problem. They're the children of God and people that we should reach out and help regardless mm-hmm. of our political leanings and politics and all that stuff. Yeah. In fact, that's really close to the statement from the state president there who serves that border camp. Um, he said, we are a religious organization that provides assistance without regard to race, religion, or nationality. And the help we give is based on principles of personal responsibility community. Um, so yeah. yes, exactly right. Um, I just, I really do think it's great that as a church, we do so much good in so many places and we don't toot our own horn about it a lot. Um, but this stuff like this is happening all over the world. And I think it's awesome. It makes me proud to be a member of our church. Yeah. And the other thing I like about it is that in our church, you have people with loads of money that give to humanitarian causes. And you have people with very little money that are giving to humanitarian causes. True. And the church has a way of making them all feel like whatever they gave is enough and it's helping people. And like, so I can feel a part of it, even if I can't do more than I can do at the time. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, I like that too. And no matter where in the world you live, you're making a difference worldwide, wherever need is. And I think that's awesome. Yeah. So the next story is that Mitt Romney wrote an opinion piece in the Deseret News. Isn't that shocking? So is Mitt Romney, is he a Mormon? (laughs) He is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Oh, okay. Okay, And he's a senator from Utah. (laughs) And I think... Maybe he is a little bit surprised at the way that some Republicans feel about support for Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And so he lays out in this article the the reasons why the United States should support Ukraine. And the gist of his argument is that Russia is a weaker enemy than China, and China is watching what happens in Ukraine. And if the United States doesn't help the Ukrainians in their fight against Russia, then China is going to get from that the message that United States won't help Taiwan in some future struggle against China. And so it's in our interest to help the Ukrainians protect their sovereignty because it perhaps deters China from future engagement in Taiwan. So because Mitt Romney is such a prominent member of the church, and also he's held big positions, right? He's definitely been a stake president. Do you think that members of the church look to him and when he makes political statements like this, to some extent, think like he's speaking, not necessarily for the church, but he's speaking in a a voice that church members should agree with and should go along with. Because I kind of think that people look at him not just as a political leader, but as a religious leader on politics. As a grandpa, perhaps. Maybe. I I think that the people he's trying to talk to, the, the Republicans I'm aware of that would disagree with him on Ukraine, they really don't like Mitt Romney at all. Mm-hmm. And they would prefer that he just not talk because they just disagree with him. They think of him as maybe a Democrat or a rhino or something like that. But mm-hmm. I think people who are not political, people who are not really super engaged in the fight between the, the two parties, they probably just look at Mitt Romney and say, yeah, here's a guy trying to... I think they say that he's got a moral foundation to the perspective he shares, but I don't think he speaks authoritatively for the church. Mm-hmm. But I think he speaks authoritatively for church members to some extent. 
Yeah. More than Mike Lee. Well, I think that there are people who look at Mike Lee the way that other people look at Mitt Romney. Oh no, we lost um, you again. But I do think that Mitt Romney is known again as being like a stake president, right? As, oh. And and Mike Lee isn't necessarily known for that as much. So because Mitt Romney has had church positions, people think of him as a more authoritative church voice. I kind of think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I, I think that would be a difficult position to be in because he is, he's a politician and he's making political yeah. statements and he's not trying to speak for the church, but I do think and, he's looked at that way. And I disagree with him often on politics and I disagree with him often on church things. Yeah. But the beauty is that we share the same faith and we have the same moral foundation behind our ideas. So I can True. appreciate what he's trying to do. Yeah, that's a good point, Matt. All right. Um, this uh, next article is just it's a real quick feature story um, that LDS Living did on the city of Las Vegas and the members of the church there. And I think it was just a really beautiful light to shine on people who are contributing really faithfully to their community. And I know that this happens all over the world. It, this just happens to be a feature of um, Las Vegas, Nevada right now. But um, this article just quickly talks about how Las Vegas, about 6% of the people there are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but that they are overly involved in making that place um, just a really good place. They're very well known for service projects, for serving in government, um, for leading things that are family-centered. And um, anyways, it's just it's just a, a basic article. And it, again, it could have been done on any number of cities in the United States. But I just thought it was an interesting look at are we as members of the church portraying ourselves in the way that we think we want to be? And it seems like in Las Vegas, they're doing that, right? Like Las Vegas is known as the city of sin or gambling or all of these vices. Yet the members of the church there are known for being great political leaders, social activists, and just people doing really good things in their community. And I think that church-wide, that's what we want to be known as. That's who we want to be seen as. So we went on vacation to Las Vegas over President's Day because I just have to get to the sun sometimes. And we yeah. stayed close to the Strip because I like the Strip. I know I know a lot of people don't like it there, but um, I like it. What do you like about it? Just <laughs> um, it's just a big city with, it's clean. Not I mean, you don't go at the nighttime, It's right? not so. dirty like Las Vegas as far as like trash and hobos on the street. As hobos appropriate, it's not. As unhoused <laughs> people on the street. <laughs> Las Vegas will kind of push them aside and make them go yeah. to a different area than the strip. Yeah. But I just, I like the desert feeling. I like the, the, even though it's all fake, I like the facades. I like, yeah, I don't know. I, I just you like, like it. it. Okay. Yeah. So when, whenever we're there, we go to church and it's usually a church building right on the strip or near the strip. Mm -hmm. And the people who go to that ward live near the strip. Mm -hmm. And so when we went, it was ward conference there and the stake president told them that. So first he said that they don't have a lot of people that go out and serve missions. I think he said 5% or 15% of the young people eligible to serve missions actually go serve missions. Okay. But then he said that in their stake, they had 100 baptisms last year. Wow. And, and one ward had 50 baptisms last wow. year. Wow. Yeah. So it was like, the, like, on the one hand, there's a lot of sin in Las Vegas. On mm -hmm. the other hand, there's a lot of people who are trapped in sin and looking for a way out. And hmm. tremendous missionary opportunities. And hmm. so I, th I think that it's important to remember that there's both sides of that coin, that yeah. in cities where there's a lot of tough stuff going on, there's also lo lots of opportunities to bring people to Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Well, great. That, that was a good spotlight. 
Okay, so the next story is um, that they've announced new mission presidents. Okay. And they do this, they trickle these out kind of once a week as, as these people have all been called and they've all got their assignments, but they do these little bios in the church news, like I think maybe like seven of them a week. Okay. And, and the question I have for you, Melissa. Oh, is, good. I love it. Is, do you read these on a regular basis? And if so, what do you look for when you read these? Like our mom loves to read obituaries. Yes. And I kind of like to read these things a little bit, but I wonder, do you read them? I can tell you what I do in a second, but I was wondering okay. if you read them. Um, I never read it. Well, I mean, like I read the headline, like that there have been new mission presidents. In my adult life, I've literally only known ever one person that I actually knew in real life that got called to serve as a mission president. And he was a principal at a school that I was working at. And, um, and that's literally it. And so I don't know, I think if I knew more people personally, or if I, if I had like a connection to like a mission zone, but I've never been on a mission. So like, I'm not no. looking like at that mission. So I don't really have any connection to it. Um, so no, not at all. How about you? I read them like obituaries. So first I look for, is there anybody I know that's been called to serve as a mission president? Mm-hmm. And it's true. It's rare that I know someone that's been called as a mission president, but sometimes there's like, oh, so-and-so is a mission president now. Then I look for the age of the mission presidents. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I try to like see like, where are they calling young mission presidents oh. to and where are they calling them from? Huh. And then I always look at the careers of the people who are called to be mission presidents. I don't know. Because you like, do you like wonder how they're able to go at such a young age, like financially afford it? Yeah. So that's part of it. So some of them are much older, right? There's some of them that are yeah. 60 years old when they're called, but then there's some that are like in their 30s when they're called. And they're usually from countries where the church is growing. Um, and then I see a lot of lawyers that get called to serve uh-huh. as mission pres- and doctors and dentists and stuff like that. But so I those see- are kind of professions that you could put a practice on hold for a few years and then come back to it or no. Yeah. I think that's probably what it is. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I, I've never drawn any conclusions from it. I just sort of look at it and just no, notice patterns. I'm like, okay. not a lot of construction people that get called on missions, not a lot yeah. of like managers of supermarkets and things like that. Like there's just a lot of professions that you don't see those people called as mission presidents. Okay. Uh, I don't know. That's just what I do. Huh. And you yeah. don't do it. You don't even care. Well, no, I think it's interesting, like yeah. what you do, but no, I don't pay any attention. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we got to move on. We can't yeah. stand that forever. Should we, uh, should we jump to famous Mormons? <laughs> oh, this is the game you love to play. <laughs> I really, really like this one. Okay. okay so you, so get this sh- is, you tell me three people and I guess which one of them is a Mormon. Yeah. Now remember the word is Mormon adjacent. They, yes. they, they might not be active in the church. Okay. Okay. I am going to have my Google tab open so that I can Google these people just in case I don't know them. Okay. So all three of these are female comedians. Okay. And they typically are people that our generation would know. But Okay. okay. Sounds good. Okay. Give them to me. We have Amy Schumer. Do you know okay. who Amy Schumer is? She's blonde. Yes. Um, nope. Let's see. Amy Schumer. Train yeah. Wreck. I feel like I know her. Like she's funny. Yeah. I feel like I know who she is. Okay. Chelsea. Okay. Amy Schumer. Okay. Who Ch- else? Chelsea Handler. Chelsea Handler. Chelsea Handler is kind of does the late night talk show circuit stuff. She's a comedian. She's usually a little crass, usually okay. loud and outspoken. Okay. Okay. Who else you got? Tina Fey. Tina, Tina Fey was Fey. Saturday Tina Night Fey, Live. I know because I read her biography. Oh, Mrs. Her Smarty autobiography. Pants. Um, bossy pants. See. Yeah, Miss Bossy Pants. Okay, so you're saying that one of these is LDS. Adjacent. 
alias adjacent. <laughs> um, okay, I'm gonna go Tina Fey. Oh, oh, such a good guess, guess, but no, it's Chelsea Handler. It's Chelsea Handler. The one she, that you said is crass. That's why I didn't guess that one. Were you trying to throw me off by being well, like, she's crass, so I wouldn't pick her? So she grew up in a home where her father was Jewish and her mother was a member of our church. And she says that when she grow up, grew up, she chose Jewish, obviously, because members of our church are so mean and we can't do anything. You can't even drink caffeine in our church. And oh, so why would anybody choose that awful faith? <laughs> because there's so many things you can't do. So okay, so is her mother like actively LDS, or do you know? All we know is what Chelsea has told us, and it's just these little bits, little snippets of like that. Okay, she, she's told people that she was raised in our church, or her mother was a member of our church when she was growing up, and she does not love us. So well, all of yeah. you out there who are hoping to marry Chelsea Handler and have her convert yeah. to the faith, I'm sorry. <laughs> she. Matthew, we should never rule anyone out. It's entirely possible. Um, but um, yeah, it, it doesn't sound like right now that's her goal. Okay, so we're going to do... Sister Handler, is that what we call her? <laughs> you didn't even know who she was. She is not your sister. <laughs> She's not my sister. <laughs> All right, that was fun, Matthew. Thank you for playing. It is um, not the time for Big Deal, Little Deal, or No Deal. Yes, Big so Deal, I'm Little gonna... Deal, No Deal. Okay, so this is where we read the headline... Yeah. And then we count down three, two, one. And at the same time, we say whether we think the story is a big deal, a little deal, or no deal, right? That's right. And I don't know your stories and you don't know mine. So it's, it's you know, it's fun like that. Are you going to go first? Yep. My first okay. story. Okay. So is... just read me the headline. <sighs> okay. The headline is, I have to get, Sorry. Okay. Newly released Spencer W. Kimball Diaries shine a light behind the scenes of modern Mormonism. Okay. Three, two, one, no deal. Why are we always opposite? Big deal? Yeah, I think diaries from a president of the church, I think that's a big deal. And especially because you said it shines light on... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's yeah, super yeah. interesting. Okay. You don't think you don't think that's a big deal? Um, they, the church passed a rule a little while ago that says if you get called to be a general authority, your journals and all of that stuff no longer belong to you; they belong to the church. Oh, interesting. And so, and so my issue with this is that they wait. They waited to publish his diaries until like so long until anything that would be interesting in them is now like ancient history. And I would have preferred that they let his son or someone in his family write something about his diaries or reveal them to the public first before hmm. they go through this whole, I would call it like a sanitization process from the church history oh. department. Okay. Um, that's an interesting perspective that I wouldn't think about. Um, isn't isn't President Kimball the one who was in charge of the reversal of the blacks in the priesthood? Yeah. yeah. I would love to read more journal entries on that type of a thing. Do you think there's yeah. stuff like that? I. I, I mean, allegedly, that's what's exciting about it. I don't okay. think that we're going to find anything there. <clears throat> I think that if there was anything like juicy there, then the church wouldn't be releasing it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. That's, that's my take on it. Well, I'll tell get... you what. I would probably read it. I, I'm I'm interested in this sort of thing. So I'd probably read it, the whole okay. journal. 
Yeah. Okay. Um, here's my headline. Okay. It is from the Religion News Service and it is Mormonism's slow shift away from demonizing working mothers. Okay. You ready? Uh-huh. Three, two, one. No Little deal. deal. Oh, no deal. deal at all. Nothing's a deal to you at all. Well, no, Listen, I, w- I would love for it to be. I think this is really interesting because it's a big picture look at how um, teachings in the church have changed really from the time where I feel like in the 70s when I was born, um, all that we heard in church and especially me in young women's is that um, women should stay at home and nurture children and men are responsible for going to work, right? And... um and that if you are a good woman, then you should set aside the things that you want to do, like having a career, because it's more important to do the things that God wants you to do, which is having a family and being a mother. And I really, there's a lot of, a lot of articles that are very specific about that. Now, me and you, we had, our mom was a single mom um, with you know, seven kids and, um, always had to work. And, um, I think that she, because she was in that generation felt a lot of guilt, um, for being a working mom. And I think today, now that I've gone through, you know, being an adult and now that my daughters are coming of age and working in, um, in working and neither of my daughters are, are moms yet, but it is a completely different message that's being sent to our young women now. Like it is a complete shift. And it is get an education, be prepared for a job, um, pursue your um, your passions. And these things will make you a good mom and also just more fulfilled as a woman. Like it is a complete 180 shift. I think, I think that's a big deal. I, I think that it's, it's a, a deal. I, I say no deal because a <clears throat> hundred years ago, the women of our church were instrumental in in the suffragette the suffragette movement, yes. getting women the right to vote. And yes. I think that what happened with the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, our church went 180 degrees the other way. And mm-hmm. um, I'm not happy that it's a slow thing. And I don't think that it's changing as fast as people would like to think that it's changing. There's but it is a huge, it almost feels like a doctrinal shift because it was, it, it felt very doctrinal before that this is a woman's role, right? This is your responsibility and your calling in life, right? Oh. And now it's still that, that is, that is a calling. That's an important responsibility, but not that that's what makes you a good member of the church, that doctrinally that's what you're supposed to do. It's a big shift, I think. So you, you're going to know this historical fiction romance book better than I do. Mm-hmm. When I talked to my daughter about it, she knew the name immediately. But there's a, it was a Deseret book, and it was about 10 years ago, and it's historical fiction, fiction and it's kind of like Jane Austen romance, but LDS okay. at the same time. Okay. Do you know, do you know this book? Uh, no, but this is a very popular genre, a Deseret book. Yeah. And so yeah. the person that wrote this first book, and I can't find the name of it right now, is it maybe Regency? I don't know. Yeah, there's uh, Regency romance as a whole genre. Oh, it's a genre. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, I yeah. can't find the name of this book, but it's the best-selling book at, at Deseret Book. And it actually mm-hmm. turns out that this is what funds most of what happens at Deseret Book. Okay, so the woman who wrote that first one, in that first one, the woman needed the man. It was very like Jane Austen kind uh-huh. of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, then they commissioned another book from her. And in that book, the woman was just a little bit more independent. And by okay. the time that book got published, they had also commissioned a third book that she was writing. And in the third book, 
the woman was very independent and didn't even need a man. And she was just mm-hmm. like an independent woman with a career and her own money and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But there was such blowback from the second book with a woman that was less dependent on a man. And this author was getting letters from women like, how dare you like antagonize the church? What, have you lost your testimony? All of that stuff. Hmm. And she's writing the same stuff. It's just that the woman character is becoming more independent and more powerful. So anyhow... The church, even though Desert Book had wanted to publish the third one and it was all ready to go, they actually pulled out and said, we're not going to publish this one because our readers aren't going to love it. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like there's some progress being made, but I also feel like there's this very strong cultural push to like define womanhood and motherhood in a very particular way. And yeah. so that's why I'm not happy with the incremental shift because okay. I... I yeah. Okay. Listen, I, um, I've done both, right? Like I stayed home and gave up my career when I got married and raised my kids. And I'm so glad that I was an at-home mom. I think that was a really awesome opportunity that I had. And that I, I think it was a really, a really great way to mother. I loved it. Um, and then when my youngest started kindergarten, I went to work and I've had a really thriving and enjoyable professional career. And I also think that that's awesome. And what I want most of all is for women to be encouraged and allowed and doctrinally supported to do whichever choice works best for them and their family, right? If you want to be whatever you want to be, I want you to feel um, supported and encouraged to do that and not told that you can't do that because of a religious reason. And that's the shift that I like to see is that you're not doctrinally wrong if you decide to have a career and you're not doctrinally right if you decide to stay at home with your children. Um, I like to see that like this is just something that that women and families are allowed to figure out on their own between them and God. And do you think that that's consistent with the proclamation to the world on the family, the different roles? I do think that the roles are important, but that those are spiritual roles and not work roles, right? So are women typically more naturally nurturing and in charge of educating and children? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that they aren't also in charge of having a career and and doing those sorts of things too. So I, I don't think that the role has to be the career, right? Or has to be like what you do with your time. It's a spiritual role. It's what women are more naturally prone to be good at, right? And couples, when they enter into a marital relationship or entering into an eternal covenant with each other, yeah. and they ought to be allowed to decide how they want to divvy up responsibilities among themselves without yeah. me deciding that for them. Yeah, you should never decide that for me, Matt. In fact, I don't want you to make any decisions <laughs> for me ever. <laughs> okay, well, my headline is way less intense. The question is, it's, it's a question headline. Are okay. UFOs real? Yes, but there might not be any aliens involved. I have no idea how this is. Wait, wait, I'm sorry. Okay, one more time, one more time. It's in the desert news. Maybe that's what makes this a Mormon thing. Okay. Are UFOs real? Question mark. Yes, but there might not be any aliens involved. Okay, three, two, one. Big deal. deal. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I saw, I saw those the videos of these UFOs. There's UFOs in the sky. And we have no idea where they came from. But that doesn't mean that there are little green men inside of them. Okay. I think this is a big deal because I really think that as members of the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints, we foundationally believe 
in worlds without number, right? We yeah. believe in other um, other worlds that are identical to ours in many ways, right? Yeah. Um, we believe in continued growth. We believe that after we die, that we will be able to continue to perpetuate worlds. Like this is fundamental to our belief. So I just think it's funny when we act like, oh, that's so weird. UFOs, like... I mean, I don't, I don't know that it necessarily directly correlates to our church, but I do think that like fundamentally, we absolutely believe that there is so much more in the universe and that all of it is part of God's creation, right? Okay, next topic. Okay, um, my, um, mine is a BYU study. Okay, and here's the headline. BYU study finds missions make positive impact on women's educational and career outcomes. Three, two, one. Big deal. Big deal. Big deal. Oh, go on. You have a sister missionary out right yeah. now. Yeah. Go on. Like it, it is really, really hard if uh, if you want to like. I just think generally today, COVID's had some effect on it, but generally there are a lot of young people in the world today that are failing to launch, that are having a really difficult hmm. time transitioning from young adulthood to adulthood, and. Okay. And in the social sciences, we've been looking for a long time for any kind of like a, a secret sauce that you could say, have a woman do this and she's going to come out like more empowered, more better off generally than mm-hmm. she was when she started that. That's really hard to find those things. And so to me, the idea that an L, serving a, a mission for our church can be that secret sauce for young people, I think it's a really big deal. Nobody else has anything equivalent to that in terms of growth. And that is exactly what this study showed. It showed that sister missionaries who go to college for a year or don't, and then pause and return to college after a mission, they're much more likely to get into graduate programs and they get higher paying jobs once they graduate from college and they're more likely to graduate from college. So um, yes, missions are a really, really good thing for young women. And and I think that's awesome. Um, I think it's something that we probably could have known without a study, but I love having a study to back it up and be like, yes, this is this is something that you can choose to do for your spiritual life and you can choose to do for service, but you can also choose to do because it's a really good thing to do to impact your future. Okay. My story is shadows define the light. Photographer Meh Rocco tells Roots Tech audience to embrace their whole story. Oh, Big deal, okay. little deal, no deal. Three, two, okay. one. I have no idea. Little deal. Well, I think that Roots Tech happened and that a lot of people went to it and there was a lot of big speakers and the, the church in general puts a lot of money into Roots Tech and to publicizing it. And that's amazing. But I actually, um, I actually like this story um, just because... Um, this person and again, I don't, I don't know who she is. Me, Ra, Co. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. But what she's saying is like, hey, a lot of times we look at our history and we think like, oh, I'm embarrassed of that. Like maybe your family had like slave o- owners in it, or like maybe your family like had criminals in it, right? And so I think a lot of times that people get distracted from doing family history or embarrassed or don't want to claim their heritage. And what she's saying is like, hey. 
everybody's going to have stuff in their heritage that's difficult and um, ugly. Maybe there's abuse. Maybe you have mental illness. Like whatever it is, here's the thing is um, all of those things can actually be good things. And without darkness, there is no light. And Hmm. so let's not try to rewrite history or try to avoid difficult topics. Like let's just tell the whole story and just be honest about the fact that every story has good and bad. And that's how life is. I think it's cool. So do you... Uh, not not roots te- roots tech, but roots tech feels to me like it's trying to be like one of these many other conferences I see. Like Qualtrics puts one on where they invite these big name people, and then you go to this conference and you listen to people talk, and it's usually like motivational speakers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Do you do you like going to those kinds of things? Mm, uh, there was a time in my life where I did. If I'm frank. I would just assume listen to podcasts now. There's so many good podcasts out there. I don't really need to go to a conference and listen to a speaker. Like, but yeah. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not against it, but I, I, I do feel to, like it's sort of too commercial. Yeah, I have to go to like academic conferences. Um, yeah. So I feel like academic conferences are really strong on content and very bad on um, style. Yeah, and um, and some of these conferences feel to me way high on style, but very low on content. Mm-hmm. And I maybe Roots Tech is something that's got the sweet spot where it's got like the style and then some really good content. But yeah. um, I, I don't get giddy about family history work in that way, and so I yeah. I don't know how to I don't know how to feel about Roots Tech. Okay, <laughs> I mean I think they would say you should go to Roots Tech and you will become a giddy person, but. It's not really? for everyone at every time really? in their life. Is it like EFY for adults? I think it kind of is. Yeah, I think it kind of is. <laughs> okay, I then mean, I'm going for sure next year. Okay, I can't wait. Sign up. Get a, get a summer camp discount. Okay, here's my headline. Why even secular people should worry about Gen Z's lack of faith. Okay, three, yeah. two, one. No deal. No deal. No deal. Okay. I knew you were going to say no deal. I know you have so many opinions (laughs) on religiosity and the younger generation. Drives me crazy. I know. Listen, to be clear, Gen Z is anybody born from 1997 and later. Okay. So it's, it's basically my children's generation. But wait, 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 wait. I don't like the headline because it says Gen Z's loss of faith. Lack of faith. Lack Lack of faith. But what they're measuring is membership in a church. And those aren't well, the same kind thing. Of. They're saying like, yes, only a third of um, Gen Z actually is a member of a church or claims to be a member of a church, right? Only a third. But they're also saying things like this generation doesn't donate to um, charitable causes, which is an aspect of religion. They're not involved in service, which is another aspect of religion. So it's not just going to church, like they don't do other church-related things. And I think it's interesting because they're starting to tie this to, guess what is also wrong with this generation? There is a lot of mental health issues with this generation. And could that be connected to the fact that there isn't really this connection to the larger spiritual community or this connection to getting outside of yourself and serving and contributing and donating. So take, is, is that something to think about? I take umbrage with those claims that they make. I love your umbrage. <laughs> Matt, soapbox us. Soapbox. Let's hear it. They do serve and they do donate their time and they do donate their money, but they don't do them in the ways that we did them. And mm-hmm. so we don't have measures to pick up on that. We don't have this measure that says like, did you Venmo anybody money for a cause? Like sure. when I what like I see in schools 
People will like if something's going on, they say Venmo money, and kids Gen Z is Venmoing money to all of these different. You're calls. right. That is true. That's true. And they're yeah. not measuring that. Yeah. And then and then in terms of volunteering, they just do it in different ways. So maybe they're not going out and filling up sandbags, yeah. but they are on social media. They are active, trying to like lift each other and help each other in their own ways. So they do definitely fight causes on social media. And I will say, I think you're right. Just because this is my kids' generation and I look at it. I mean, my kids donate blood regularly. That's not something I would ever even consider doing. Um, th- that's like something that they're, they're downright into. Right. Um, and, and other things like that, right. Like they're, um, they're running races. They're, um, yeah, they're doing they, things. It's you're right. It just looks different. They don't like organized religion. And I mm-hmm. have to say, if I grew up in their generation, I would be like wary of organized religion too, because yeah. organized religion in America has some problems, uh, especially the big ones. And so I would see why they would say, I don't need that. I can go do it on my own. Now, again, this isn't me like preaching. This isn't me like, I'm not going to tell my kids, you don't need organized religion because I believe that that's not true. But as a generation, I don't think it's fair for us to look at them and say, they do religion differently than we did. Therefore, let's look at all of the negative consequences that they have that we didn't have. And we'll Mm -hmm. attribute that to their, their doing religion differently. So that's that stuff always bothers me because I say we just don't have the right measures for measuring religiosity among young people. Yeah. I actually really like this soapbox of yours, Matt. That's kind of <laughs> why I put this article in because I do think you explain it well. Like you describe what you're saying very well. And I think that's what I believe too. But it, it is hard when you look at the generation and you're like, nobody goes to church. People really aren't serving missions like before. And then I know people in my generation who are like, what's this church service mission thing? That shouldn't even count. It looks different. It serves a similar purpose, right? And I do think that, yeah, I don't think that these younger generations get enough credit for the good that they're doing. And they are legitimately trying to change the world in the same way that every generation does. And they're going about it in a way that maybe we don't understand, but they understand it and it's working for them. And the world is changing and, it, yeah. and yeah, they're fundamentally doing that. So yeah. In some ways, I feel like our generation says to them, wait your turn, wait your turn. We're, mm. We've been waiting for the boomers to give us our chance in line for all of these years <laughs> yeah. wait yeah. till we're done. And they're kind of like, no, we're not going to wait our turn. We can do stuff now and we're going to do it the way that we can do it. Yeah. You guys can just have to adjust to us. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Great, the, the next headline is Scott Taylor. Why dying testimonies is just one reason to avoid missionary slang. Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Big deal, little deal, or no deal. Three, two, one. Big no deal. deal. <laughs> You're kidding. You think no, this no, is no. a big deal? <laughs> Listen, it's, it's all about missionary slang. Missionaries use some weird slang today. So I was talking to my daughter and she's nearing the end of her mission and she's like, I just realized that it's really possible that I'm going to die in this area. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? I don't want you to die. She's like, no, no, that just means that's where I ended my mission. I died in this okay, area. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And then she's like, and my my trainer died in this area. I was like, what are you talking All this horrible tragedy. So this article is all about like missionary slang is not dignified and unworthy oh. of missionaries today. And, and it confuses our... And by the way, the missionary standards, the handbook says they should use dignified language. So stop th- oh. saying things like dying testimony, dying okay. in an area. Talk okay. about living faith and the things that matter. Do you know what is hard? To be a missionary. 
<laughs> it is hard. And you know what? Bless their hearts. They are young people, right? In the prime of their lives, they're out there on these missions and they get so much instruction. They are so micromanaged. <laughs> they are, they really, really are. And then at the same time, you just see them and they're just alive and vibrant and thriving and just so in love with the gospel. And I think let's just like, maybe not tell them what to do so much all the time. And like, oh, and one more thing, watch your language. Like, but President Nelson said, be. President Nelson said, obedience brings blessings. Exact obedience brings miracles. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yes, I think that they are following all of the rules and maybe we could give them a few less. That's all I'm saying. Like, all right. He's up. They're doing a great job. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's jump to another segment, shall we? Um, let's, do it. If, let's see. I think we can. I think Mormons doing goodly. Mormons doing goodly. Yes, this is a segment that the twin sisters do, and we love. We love it. So, um, uh, Matt, what have you got for us? Mormons doing goodly. March eighth, if, if you weren't aware, is International Women's Day. And so, in, in honor of that, the uh, KSL did an interview with somebody in the Relief Society presidency, talking about the good that the Relief Society has done. And I'm just going to mention a few things that they mentioned. Okay. Are Mormons doing goodly because of International Women's Day is going to be the Relief Society and all of the great women in the church. Yeah. So here's just a few things that these women have done. In the early 1900s, the organization sponsored a program to train nurses to assist with public health and set up maternity homes and maternity closets to help with children. Hmm. With the help of women of the church, the infant death mortality rate and the maternal death rate were reduced significantly. During World War II, they trained thousands of women to become social service aides that became the foundation for LDS family services that we have today. Mm-hmm. And as I hinted at previously, in the late 1800s, they, were a, they played a key role in the women's suffrage movement. Yeah. And Utah became the third state to extend political equality to women in the form of the vote. There's there's other ways right. that Utah hasn't gone that far yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think the Relief Society as an organization is extraordinarily underrated. It is amazing and astounding what this group of women, we women of the church, accomplish. Like literally yeah. daily. In, and you start like individually you go in homes, you talk about neighborhoods, then you go to wards, you talk about cities, you talk about counties, you talk about states, and then you just look at worldwide how all of these things just starting in an individual home with an individual woman. And then you just, if you could just see a map of all of those things happening worldwide, I think it is astounding and amazing. And and I think it should be recognized. So yeah, I like that. Great. All right. Now it's time for my least favorite segment and your very most favorite. Are you ready? This week in Mormon history. Well, I thought that I would start with something you would really love. This Okay, good, because this is where you tell me stories about history and I pretend to know about history <laughs> and then I try to find a reason to be interested in it. Right? That's right. That's right. Okay, great, great, great. And you are a University of Utah alum, so I thought you would oh, find this interesting. Okay, 70 great. years ago today. Well, okay. this week. Okay, okay. So we're talking in the 50s? Yep. David O. McKay tells the president of the University of Utah that it is an LDS institution. You probably <laughs> didn't know that. <laughs> okay, okay. So the president of the church at the time was David O. McKay? Yes. And he, and told he basically him. went to the University of Utah president and was like, yo, I don't know if you understand this, but your university is an LDS institution. Isn't that great? 
That's amazing. Now, as my recollection as a University of Utah alum is that it was originally the university that was founded by Brigham Young, correct? Mm, and then, I don't know. I don't know. Yes, I, this is my recollection. Is that there's this okay. feeling of hatred that wells inside of me every time I think about that institution? So wow. I've not really delved into the the deep history of that place. So, so you play the um, the game hard as far as like um, we're enemies. I really, I really cannot explain it, but I hate, hate, hate the University of Utah. Uh, uh, I, I mean, I look, I'm speechless. <laughs> I know, because I know. You hate the University of Utah? I hate it. And every time they lose, I cheer. And every time something bad happens there, it makes me happy. Now, I have friends that work there. And I, and I encourage my friends to go there. I have no problem with people going there. But just as the institution, I just think they're the worst. You're so stuck up. (laughs) Listen, this is the history of the University of Utah. Soon after the Mormon pioneers arrived in 1847, Brigham Young began organizing a board of regents to establish a university. The university was established in 1850 as the University of Deseret. And yes, it was the original university founded by Brigham Young, whose name is now on another college, which like thinks they're all that because they think they're (laughs) Brigham Young University, but technically University of Utah was his university. And it's an LDS institution. (laughs) Now, do I think that's still true? Wouldn't it be so funny if Russell M. Nelson was like, hey, just so you know, University of Utah, you're an LDS institution. That is kind of a funny history story. They'd be like, thanks, man. Okay, what what else do you have? A little less interesting, but I think it's important. 190 years ago, Joseph Smith received a revelation that is now Doctrine and Covenants section 91. And I bring it up because most people in the church are not familiar with the Apocrypha, but he was translating the Old Testament and he got to the Apocrypha and he asked the question, should I translate this? And if you read the revelation, the Lord tells Joseph Smith that the Apocrypha is mostly correct. And then he also says, but there's other parts that are not correct. But he says it's mostly correct, and so it doesn't need to be translated. And I think that that's cool, because there's really fun stuff in the Apocrypha. Okay, you're right. This Okay, first of all, (laughs) you told that story really fast. And to someone who has no idea what we're talking about, I had a hard time keeping up. Okay. 190 years ago, was the church even a church? Yeah, yeah. What year was that? 1833. Okay, so we're barely a church. Has but the Book of Mormon been translated? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's this okay. is Doctrine and Covenants section ninety-one. Okay, and so then, so the Doctrine and Covenants, and then there's this thing in the Old Testament called the Apocrypha, which is what. So Joseph Smith is translating the Old Testament. Right. So he went through and like did his translation of it. Uh huh. He finishes that and he gets to the Apocrypha. Which is what? It's the coolest stuff. So you know how the the, end of the Old Testament? The Old Testament ends and then there's this huge chunk before the New Testament. Oh. The the Apocrypha covers that period of time. Oh, interesting. It's got the book of Maccabees in it. And it's it's got other, so, you know, when the Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah and the festival of lights and all of that stuff, Okay, that whole story is in the Maccabees, in the Apocrypha. In the Apocrypha. Huh. Yeah, I know nothing about this. Okay. Okay. Most members of the church don't because we just read the stuff that's assigned in Sunday school. Yeah. But Apocrypha is accepted as scripture by Jewish people and it's accepted as scripture by uh, I say a lot of Christians and and us apparently because the Lord tells them it's mostly correct. 
Okay. But it's not in our scripture, so most of us don't read it. But there's some really cool stuff in there. Okay, so 190 years ago, basically the revelation was, hey, you can count this as scripture, but you don't need to re-translate um, Trans- it, That's basically. Right. Huh. Yeah. Okay, I do find that interesting. I'm sorry it took so much to get me to where what we were talking about. Um, so have you like read the Apocrypha all the way through, or how do you, um, yeah. how do, you do that? You can find it online. You can okay. just Google the Apocrypha, but I have That's an app. Weird. I told not, you. you're, you're talking like you could just Google anything and find stuff online. <laughs> weird. <laughs> Nobody owns the copyright to the Apocrypha. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> it's, it's free. So there's apps that you can use to read it. I like yeah. it. I really like the Maccabees story. It's it's so faith-promoting. Huh, okay. um, yeah, I love it. Okay, Excellent. then the, the, last, the last This Week in Mormon History, 80 okay. years ago today, the church established the Navajo Zuni mission, which was the first mission in the 20th century directed only to Native Americans. So oh. in 1830, there was this mission to go to the Lamanites, okay. and it took them 100 years to finally formalize this effort to proselyte among Native Americans. And so... so- this would be like in the forties. Uh-huh. So you, for the first time ever could get called on a mission to go to teach the Navajo people. And yeah. it was, it was like, you would go to like a native American reservation reservation and okay. learn their language and teach them the gospel in their language. Is that something we still do today? I think that that mission is still around. Um, but I do think that more native Americans speak English now than they did in the 1940s. There was a, there have been lots of movements to kind of like rid the Native Americans of their culture and their language and stuff. Right. Um, I know but that I, from watching um, Longmire. <laughs> oh, okay. That's well, my series I do know on There are older people I talk to that serve their missions in the Navajo Nation and they can speak uh-huh. Navajo and stuff like that. But I, I haven't heard of anyone getting called there recently. So maybe it doesn't still exist. Or maybe it's um, a mission where they send Navajos to Navajo Nations. I don't know. I guess we shouldn't talk about things that we don't know, but speculating is always entertaining on podcasts. It's so always a lot of fun. Why not? <laughs> okay, Melissa, hey, those were pretty good. That's it for this week in Mormon history. And that's awesome. That means that that's it for this week in Mormons for us. So we would like to remind you that we think, listener, we think that you should subscribe to This Week in Mormons on social media. You can yeah. find us on Facebook slash This Week in Mormons. You can find us on Twitter at The Real Twim. And a bit of personal news, I recently started a new podcast called The Latter-Day Lens. In yeah, which it's really good, Matthew. It's really good. The Latter-Day Lens. Go ahead, tell us what it's about. We talk about diff- difficult political topics from a faith-promoting perspective. So like in recent episodes, we've talked about abortion, transgender rights, guns. Sometimes we talk about big questions like the proper role of government in society. So if you're looking for entertaining, faith-promoting discussion of current political events without all the anger you hear in other places, check out The Latter-Day Lens. And you've got like four or five episodes published right now? uh, Yeah, maybe even more than that. We do them once a week on Wednesdays. Awesome. And then finally, listeners, we do want to hear from you. So if you have any feedback on the podcast, you can totally send us an email. The email address is contact at thisweekinmormons.com. And we will check those and we'd love to hear how it's going and what you think. And um, and we just really appreciate you listening. We love you listeners. Yeah. Keep listening to This Week in Mormons. <laughs>